Good morning. I'm Angela Davis, and you're listening to NPR News. Thanks for joining us. I do want to let you know that we're going to talk about a sensitive topic today, and it may be disturbing for some, so please take care when listening. This morning, I want to tell you about Madeline Kingsbury. She was affectionately known as Maddie. Her friends and family describe her as a smart, competent, and thoughtful person. At age 26, her loved ones say she hit her stride as a clinical research coordinator at the Mayo Clinic. She was in graduate school at the University of Minnesota and was a single mom of a two-year-old son and a five-year-old daughter in Winona. And tragically, her life story stops there. Last month, authorities found her body in Fillmore County on a remote stretch of road just north of Mabel, Minnesota, about an hour south of Winona. Her former partner, Adam Fravel, has been charged with second-degree murder in this case. I wish I could tell you this is an isolated incident, but it's not. An average of 24 people per minute are victims of rape, physical violence, or stalking by an intimate partner in the United States. And yeah, let that sink in for a moment. I said 24 people per minute. My guests today have looked closely at what leads up to these moments and how to prevent these cases in the first place. And as I speak with them this morning, I want to hear from you too. Are you a survivor of domestic abuse or do you know someone who is? Is there someone in your life you would like to support? Please share your story or questions with us. You can call us. The phone lines are open. Here are the numbers. You can call 651 627-6000 or call 800-242-2828. Joining me this morning from our NPR Duluth studio is Melissa Skaya. Melissa is the Director of International Training at Global Rights for Women, and that is a Minneapolis-based nonprofit working to end gender-based violence against women and girls. She's also the founder and the co-facilitator of Pathways to Family Peace at the organization, and that's a program for domestic violence offenders to work to end their use of violent and abusive behaviors. Now, Global Rights for Women, you may have read, recently put out a report looking at gaps in how the Minneapolis Police Department responds to domestic violence cases. Good morning, Melissa. Thank you for your time. Good morning, Angela. Thank you for having me. Also joining us from our Duluth studio, sitting next to uh, Melissa, is Scott Miller. Scott is the executive director of Domestic Abuse Intervention Programs in Duluth. Now, this is an organization that used what's called the Duluth Model to address domestic violence. And we're going to talk more about exactly what that means. But it is, I can tell you, the most common intervention program for domestic violence used in the United States. Good morning, Scott. Good morning, and thank you for having me. And I do want to let our listeners know that if you need help right now, that you can reach out to the National Domestic Violence Hotline by phone, text, or online chat. And this is the number. It's 800-799-7233. Again, that number to the National Domestic Violence Hotline is 800-799-7233. Also, Minnesota Day One has a crisis hotline and shelter services, and that number is 866-223-1111. Melissa, you have heard so many firsthand stories of of women who are survivors of domestic abuse. And I'm just wondering, how do you react when you hear new cases that come up in the news, like the one I just mentioned in my introduction about Madeline Kingsbury? You know, what comes up for you? 
Yeah, for me, one of the things that comes up for me is a little bit about how normalized we've become in the United States in particular and in the state to, you know, hearing that women have been killed by their intimate partners. I mean, one of the things to know, even just in the United States as a country, that on average, it's three women a day are killed by their intimate partner. Uh, you know, you can watch any sort of news program on the radio, listen to a news program. We're constantly hearing it. And so for me, I'm always sort of wondering, you know, what's going to be the impetus that's going to change this? Mm-hmm. I do know that uh, family members and friends of those who have been killed have done a lot of advocacy with the rest of us to help make these changes and have really come forward and spoke up. And so I encourage any family member, a friend of someone who's been killed or nearly killed, we have lots of women who also survived, yes. you know, um, that for a number of purposes, it's it's a miracle per se. And so we really uh, encourage them to reach out to organizations like ours and others in Minnesota, like Violence Free Minnesota, to coordinate to really bring this to the forefront as an important issue. And Scott, uh, for you, when you hear about uh, yet another case of domestic violence, what do you, what goes through your mind? I think what I would add to what Melissa said is that there's a there's a notion that people have that they're these are individuals doing individual acts at homes, and they're really not like us, and really lose sight of the cultural problem that we have around violence against women and the thinking that that uh, men in these relationships get socially constructed to believe that they, uh, they get to punish her for not complying, they get to punish her into submission, that they're superior to her. And, um, and I think we lose sight of the problem when we lose sight of how this is a cultural problem rather than a problem of individuals. Melissa, as we think about what is happening in some homes, um, what can you share with us about some of the stories of survivors who you've interviewed as part of your research? Can you give us some descriptions of what, what we know happens? Yeah, I mean, part of it is that a lot of survivors, in my experience, you know, don't reach out for help. Um, or tell even friends or family the first time it happens. That, in my experience, that's quite rare, that a lot of survivors try and navigate what their experience. Most abusers blame victims for the violence they've committed. You know, say, well, if you wouldn't have, if you wouldn't have done that. Uh, You know, recently, for example, just talking with uh, someone in our Pathways group, our abuser group, when I asked, you know, a man about, you know, tell me, what was your thinking prior to doing this and going up the stairs to your apartment? And he said, she doesn't get to embarrass me like that, right? And I said, did you say that to her? And he said, I've said it to her many times, not just that day, but before, and she doesn't get it, right? So I know that that's the experience of survivors because what happens is a lot of survivors blame themselves for what's happened. They try and, you know, think, okay, I need to do this right. And I would say the other message for survivors that I want them to know is that abusers want them to think, this is a problem in you. This is a character flaw in you. And my message to survivors is that with most abusers, they would treat any woman they're in a relationship with like this, right? That it's not them. And that's often a thing that can help survivors sort of break out of this notion like, it's me, I need to do something different. Lots of relationships have lots of problems, 
but they don't result in violence. And so a lot of abusers don't want to talk about the violence that they've committed, right? They want to say, well, we're not compatible with each other. You know, she she just needs to spend the money differently. Well, lots of relationships are that case, and they don't use violence, right? So abusers want to focus on her, on she, and all the things she needs to do. And my message to survivors is you get to be you and not apologize for it. And that does not excuse, right, that he doesn't get to do this to you. And there are a number of people in this state in particular who will talk to you confidentially about what you're experiencing and are here to help. And reading about this uh, over the last few days, something that stood out to me were um, I, I kept seeing um, something about the biggest sign that domestic abuse will turn deadly. And it had to do with placing hands on the neck. And Melissa or Scott, could either one of you address that about uh, what is it about, you know, manual strangulation or putting a hand on a neck that should be a warning sign that this is could be deadly? Well, it's a, an extremely dangerous form of violence. So, um, I mean, for the most men that I've worked with over the years, uh, don't routinely strangle. Um, when you are talking to a victim um, or working with one, and they say that, you know, what he does is he, he, he strangles me until I pass out or he, this is routine. Then, then you've got somebody that's at really high risk. Um, so the violence in itself is high risk, and then the, behave, the, the pattern behavior of it can put her at even greater risk for, for a homicide. In fact, it's the, the, the most prevalent form of violence prior to a domestic homicide which is why the state of Minnesota moved it from a misdemeanor to a felony um, a number of years ago because of its, uh, how, how dangerous it is. And essentially when, you know, um, you know, I, I remember being in a conversation with this man in, from group and, and he was justifying, like Melissa was saying, um, you know, the, 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 the idea that these men, one of the things that's very characteristic about them is that they, they have this notion that they're the victim, that, that she's not the victim, she's the, she's the cause, and he's the victim of it. But when you break that down, um, he's a victim of being entitled to things he's not getting. So it's like anybody at the top of any kind of hierarchy, they, they have this expectation that those who they feel are below them should be giving them something that they're not. And when they don't get it, they're the victim. And so that makes him quite justified in what he's doing. And so... I'm talking to this individual, uh, and, and he said, you know, um, all I did is put her hands around her neck. You know, I didn't, I didn't intend to, to, to kill her, so I don't know what the big deal is. And I said, but from her perspective, you're putting your hands around her neck and deciding if and when she's going to breathe, and she doesn't know that. So tell me about what you were trying to achieve by putting her into that much fear that she didn't know if she was going to be able to walk away from this. What were you, you know, that, that's kind of that, that conversation um, because that's essentially what he's doing is deciding whether or not she's going to breathe or not. And she doesn't have a means of, of I mean, she's basically subject to a decision he's going to make um, when she's in, vulnerable in that position. So that's, it's a very dangerous form of violence. It's also a very controlling um, form of violence. Strangulation. So putting your hands around someone's neck. Yes. 
All right. Uh, if you're just joining us, we're talking about domestic violence and how cases are investigated and handled. Uh, and I want to know, are you a survivor of domestic abuse or do you know someone who is? Is there someone in your life who you would like to support? You can call and share your story or ask questions of our guests. The number is 651-227-6000 or you can call 800-242-2828. And before we get into some of the details of this uh, report uh, that uh, Global Rights for Women um, just issued after spending uh, years looking into how domestic violence cases were handled in Minneapolis in particular, uh, I do want to take a phone call from a listener uh, as we're getting calls already. And in in Minneapolis, we have um, Joan on the line. And Joan, what did you want to share with us? Hello? Yeah, it's actually uh, Joe. Joe, okay, Joe. I'm sorry. <laughs> go go right no, ahead. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to, um, from both personal and professional experience, I'm a um, psychologist. I wanted to talk about some of the myths, perhaps, that people have about um, women who are in situations like this, or men. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not uh, weak or stupid or somehow unable to figure things out. There's a lot of circumstances that go into keeping a woman in an abusive relationship, including manipulation. um, And usually there's a prior history of trauma. So there's some repetition compulsion going on. And there's also the isolating from family and friends and threats to either harm or kill Um, limits to outside. For example, I have a sister who, uh, you know, her computer was quote broken and she has to run an errand to talk to me, and um, her phone is limited. Everything is monitored. So there's a lot of factors that go into the inability to get help. And what I've learned is I have to detach with love and provide the opportunities, provide the, the resources to her, but then I have to step back because a lot of it is out of my control, and it's, it's maddening. Um, but there's only so much that that one can do. Right. And the conversation so, is not as simple as why don't you just leave him? That's not the conversation. Oh, never. Never. And it's not her fault. Okay. You know, she's not a weak one. She's a very strong individual. And she there's a lot of reasons why she got into this. And so it's I just give her unconditional love. And you said that's your sister? Yes. All right. Thank you, Joe. Uh, and thank you for calling in. Thank you for listening. Um, Melissa, I, I want to talk about this report and the, refined, and the findings. Um, and I understand the Office of Police Conduct in Minneapolis requested that your organization, Global Rights for Women, assess how the Minneapolis Police Department responds to domestic violent ca- violence cases. But what even brought that about? What was going on to bring this request? Can you please study this? Yeah, so what happened is, I believe it is around 2014 or so, and and that time period is a number of survivors in Minneapolis were calling the Minneapolis police and asking for copies of police reports for when they called police to get documentation because they needed it for civil court or family court, for maybe for the divorce, custody, or order for protection. And a number of survivors, when they called the Minneapolis police or went there and said, I need copies of these reports, 
uh, the response was something like, oh, well, we don't have that report, or you said you called, you know, six times, we only have two reports. And survivors are really the ones in Minneapolis that came forward and said, this is not right, this shouldn't be happening. I called, you know, and so what's going on? So then what the the Police Oversight Commission did is they uh, asked their staff from the city to do a study to look at, you know, how often are the Minneapolis police following their own policy about taking a report um, when victims call? And then how often are they making an arrest in domestic violence? One of the things to know about that report in particular is that this was not a sample over those three years. They actually were able to query Every domestic violence intimate partner case in the city of Minneapolis for a three-year time period. And in that, what they found is that the Minneapolis police only followed their own policy of writing a report in just over 20% of the time. And so when you look at the U.S. Department of Justice and kind of what's the national average for that, the national average is about 78%. So that was pretty significant in terms of what writing they found. Writing a report. And then the, mm-hmm. writing just a writing report. a report, not mm-hmm. making an arrest. Yep, just that they were there who they talked to, even if they didn't make an arrest, right? A lot of survivors need that for family court or civil court, right? Mm -hmm. To document it. Document Mm -hmm. it. Yep. Yep. Their policy says to do that. Just over 20%. National average is about 78%. And and I used to be uh, the director in Duluth. I used to work with Scott. And so I knew it was Mm -hmm. different. It could be different and and can be different. And so uh, that's why he and I, you know, are sort of here talking today because part of it is to say what's happening in other communities where that's not happening. What are they doing differently in cities like Duluth, cities like St. Paul, you know, cities in Massachusetts or, you know, wherever. There are a number of cities across the U.S. where this is not happening. And, and well, so Melissa, that, did, that did, became the impetus. Did you ever arrive at a why? Like, what is your understanding of why calls to the police department about domestic violence would go, um, you know, undocumented, unre- unreported? Uh, why? Yeah, so there are a number of reasons that we document in the report. I would say one of the things that we found um, is that the lack of oversight of in this department um, is needs to be improved, is what I would say. And I know this from other departments. So, you know, when an officer goes out, and for example, I knew from when I was working in Duluth, and Scott can talk about it here, but what's not happening is you're not having somebody look at those reports. They're not comparing it, right, to how many calls went out, how many reports are made. So that would be common, right? And then there's not investigators as an oversight. There's not anyone in command as an oversight, right, that are tracking this. And it, what happens in other communities where they have a coordinated response, they don't even just have, uh, for example, you know, within the department, but they establish a team of people who will look at this sort of thing to make sure that there's oversight so that when it does happen, it can then be corrected. And that's not what we saw in Minneapolis. And I think, you know, a lot of people ask us about the U.S. Department of Justice report that came out the day, Mm -hmm. you know, after ours came out. And I would say, you know, the similarity that we just sort of saw is a lack of oversight, right? A lack of uh, supervision and accountability within the department. Now, they looked for other reasons, right? But what we found is that with domestic violence cases, this is not happening. And if it doesn't happen throughout the whole department, it's not going to improve for victims of domestic violence. Scott, what's your perspective on the role police play in domestic violence cases? 
Well, it's it can be it can be huge. I mean, I I mean, one of the things that both Melissa and I, working with police departments um, across the country and in other countries, is that when women are calling and accessing, um, you know, they're calling for help. They need something right now. So in the focus groups I've done with women, uh, for example, they're um, it's two thirty in the morning. There's nobody else they can call. Um, it's a highly dangerous situation, and they need somebody to respond. Um, they're relying on on this agency to protect them, and then they make the call, and it doesn't happen. So, you know what we try to do in a in a Duluth model type response, <clears throat> excuse me, is to listen to these women in focus groups. Really get you know what happens when law enforcement arrives at the scene. What are they doing that's helping? What are they doing that's not? And then we take the stuff that's not, um, and we try to work with command to build that into the way that they respond. Um, uh, law enforcement can be a, a resource or a hindrance, just like every other agency um, that responds, depending upon how they're organized to take up this particular problem. And so we're trying to work with these government agencies, in this particular case, um, to, to change um, not only what they do, but the supervision piece that Melissa is talking about is just crucial. You can have the best policy on the planet, but if it isn't being supervised, it likely isn't going to happen. Um, so like in Duluth, for example, um, a Duluth police officer writes a report, and the next morning there are three advocates, one uh, from Safe Haven Shelter for Better Women, one from the American Indian Housing Organization, and one from domestic abuse intervention programs, along with two investigators who are reviewing that. So that's Right there, that's that's five people plus the sergeant plus the lieutenant. So you've you've got this situation where an officer in Duluth knows that there's no report that they write that's going to be more scrutinized um, and gone over than a than a domestic mm-hmm. violence report. So their likelihood of adhering to policy is going to be much higher because they know if they don't, they're going to get um, there's going to be a call. Right. So uh, supervision is just crucial. Now, I understand consistent response. I understand supervision, but we also know within the Minneapolis Police Department and and departments around the country, they have staffing issues. They do not have enough officers. So is that part of the problem as well, that they can only do so much? Well, one of the things, Angela, just to note, and and we kind of knew this question would come up from anyone, right, is that a similar study to the one that we just did happened in 2005 about the Minneapolis Police Department specifically. That was done by the Batter Women's Justice Project in Minneapolis. They found the same thing. And at at that time, this gap was recognized, right? Mm -hmm. It was an issue that was then. The resources were much better, right? And so what we know is now we're at almost 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the case. So the question is, what do we do about this now? What we're saying in part what has to happen now, one of the first things that the Minneapolis police um, needs to focus on, and we're going to start this actually tomorrow when we have our, our, our multidisciplinary group meeting, is we have to also improve how the police assess risk of offenders, right, of domestic violence. That's a the practice that they're using is what's known as sort of an older practice, right? It's not an updated practice. They're not asking 
asking the right questions. So part of it is what we're saying is that we have to get, we have to, we have to move the needle at mm-hmm. least to the point where they're doing better assessment. So the rest of the system knows, right, about who you have there, right, in terms of so that when you're looking at this multidisciplinary teams, right, we can make this better. The other thing can happen, like Scott's saying, those five people in Duluth, right, three of them do not work for the city of Minneapolis. They're mm-hmm. partnerships with other organizations. There has not been a lack of willingness from other partners in Minneapolis to partner with the Minneapolis PD. I know that because our partners include Domestic Abuse Project, Tubman, Cornerstone. We've talked to Casa de Esperanza. There's a number of programs in Minneapolis that have been working on this for years. They asked us at Global Rights for Women to work on this and coordinate this because our office is in Minneapolis, but they have to work with survivors every day and the Minneapolis police. We were better positioned to do this. So there are plenty of partners in the city of Minneapolis who are ready and willing to be partners with the city of Minneapolis that do not require any additional uh, people for the city. But I would also say the city should also give money to those organizations, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, generally nonprofit staff don't cost as much as police officers. Not that I support that notion, but that's just the reality of the case. There are ways to do this that don't, you know, require just additional police. So the supervision and the structure, just the way that it is is um, organized could have a huge, uh, yes. make a huge difference. Uh, one of the major findings yes. of the report that really sticks out to me, um, this report your organization produced, was that uh, officers often didn't try to locate the abuser if the abuser fled before police arrived. Again, um, that officers often didn't try to locate the abuser if the abuser fled before police arrived at the scene. How were you able to figure that out? And what is the significance of that? Melissa? Yeah, so I can tell you. So what happened is, and and of all the gaps that we saw, I would say, Angel, this was actually the biggest gap. This one stands out above all the rest. This is a major issue in the city of Minneapolis to the point that abusers actually know this. This is how long this has been going on. So many survivors we talked to said, you know, that I call the police, but he knows that if he leaves before the police get here, they're not going to go look for him. Like, he's told me that. That's how big of a problem this is. So we heard it from survivors directly, but we also took a random look at 99 different um, police reports, 99 different calls to the police, 911 calls, over this period that we looked at in for 2019 and 2020. And when we looked at that, you can see it in the reports. When we looked at it, by far stood out in terms of that uh, woman calls, for example, the police, uh, police come, he's gone. And so there is a team of people, and I want to make sure to give them credit, the Domestic Abuse Service Center, who are working to address this themselves to try and prioritize, but that's so much farther after. And I know it can be different from what happens in Duluth and how they have a policy that's about it, says they have to do it. They prioritize gone on arrivals because the other thing we know, it's one of actually the indicators of lethality is that offenders who leave the scene after a domestic violence call, when you look at the risk factors, when you sort of look back on deaths that occurred, gone on arrivals is one of them. And so the city of Minneapolis, in terms of how we think about this, has to prioritize this in terms of their response. Mm. And Scott, your thoughts on this and and what, what do these situations what do they mean for the victim if, if they are aware uh, that the abuser has a knowledge of how the system works? 
Yeah, well, every, you know, it's interesting you ask that question, Angela, because most places that I have been to, I can ask, what do abusers know about your response and how to get through it? And, and advocates, because of working side by side with these, with these survivors, know exactly how, what, what they know because they tell, the, they tell, their, their, they tell their victims, um, this is how I'm going to work it. And so gone on arrival um, is, a, is a huge issue. Uh, they're, they're, I believe it's twice as likely to reassault their partner if they don't wait for law enforcement to arrive than those who do. So this is a, this is a high-risk individual who's leaving the scene. But then you create a culture for it, right, as, many, uh, as, as Melissa was talking about, um, where, where this is what um, uh, uh, offenders know is a way to avoid consequence in the system. And then, likewise, the survivor knows it. So then what's the point of calling if you're a survivor, if you know that you're only going to put yourself at more risk for calling you know, law enforcement and then nothing happens because then he's going to be back, right? Um, uh, and, and then she's going to have to just go through all the consequence for you called the police and, and you did this to me. And again, that whole idea of being a victim again, um, you're doing this stuff to me, um, just puts her at greater risk. So, um, yeah, this is something that uh, uh, elevates the uh, risk to survivors greatly um, and their safety when when there's a when there's a institutional pattern of not following through on these cases. Let's go back to the phone lines right now here in the Twin Cities. Marie is on the phone. Marie, thank you for waiting. And and what did you want to ask or tell us about what's happening uh, in your family or among your friends? Thank you so much. Um, I just wanted to say that about a year ago, I coincidentally came upon an online newspaper article that a family, um, one of my extended family members who I don't see very much, who's in her um, late 20s, uh, that this husband had been arrested for, quote, felony terroristic threats and, and domestic assault by strangulation. And that was two years ago that I saw it. And I saw the article one year ago. And um, obviously, I was really shocked. Um, and then a subsequent article noted that, that that case against the husband had been dismissed because the victim declined to press charges. So I have two questions. Um, um, well, one quick fact. Um, this young family member has uh, three of her own young children plus two of his stepchildren, and she lives in a fairly isolated country-like area, so obviously I'm very worried about her. I, um, I want to know, number one, I did not know that it was up to the victim to decide whether to press charges. I thought that had changed a long time ago. Maybe I missed something that you already said this morning, and this is in Minnesota. And mm-hmm. obviously, number two, what would be the best way to support her? And you That's said, Marie, you've fallen out of contact with uh, this this young woman. Yes, I have. I, I probably still have her current phone number. I, I just was so shocked, and it had been mm-hmm. a year since that article was current. So... Um, and I still feel bad for not at least following up on it. Obviously, I, sh- I should and I will. I understand. And uh, Scott, do you want to go first here? Uh, what do you hear and what Marie is describing about her fa- her family member? And um, if... Well, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, Marie is correct in that um, the state is positioned to, to press charges, not the victim. So um, there shouldn't be a, 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 a situation where the uh, uh, case is dismissed because the victim doesn't want it to go forward. Um, that's, that's, not how, that's not how it's designed um, in Minnesota. So um, 
But that's that can happen, right? That a law enforcement agency or prosecutorial authority can just say, well, if she's not willing to do anything, then we're just going to dismiss it. And and Melissa and I both testify as expert witnesses in cases that are just like that. Um, most victims don't want to testify um, in, in front of the abuser um, because of the the risk that it poses. Um, and so off, you know, and again, the majority of these cases that do go forward, uh, you know, the, the survivor will call the prosecutorial authority and say that they are, uh, it's a, they made a mistake. They, what they told police was not really the truth. What the truth is, is that um, they, they bumped their head. They, they fell down a, a group, uh, some stairs. They, they injured themselves in some other way rather than from him. Um, and and hoping that that's a way to make this go away because he's probably pressuring her heavily uh, to do that. And um, and then so prosecutors uh, bring in expert witnesses to talk about why do victims recant their testimony? What's what's that motivation? So there are ways to deal with these cases um, when this. In fact, in fact, if you're prosecuting these cases and you only prosecute the ones where survivors are willing to go forward, you're not prosecuting very many cases. That's just not the landscape um, that we that we operate in. So, um, so it's unfortunate that what happened to uh, Marie's family member, um, and this is the kind of work that that we try to do to improve things, so that so that st- things like that, decisions like that, don't get made. Well, uh, Melissa, what could someone like Marie do? She's a family member, but you know, not in direct contact. Maybe not even in the same city. How can they be? How could she be supportive? Yeah, so one of the things I would say, Marie, too, is uh, is find a way that would be safe for you just to reach out to her, but not specifically about this, right? Survivors are always trying to figure out who's going to be there for me when I need help? Who can I trust? And so if it, the situation like Marie's talking about, I encourage you to reach out, you know, in a sort of a nondescript way, you know, hey, we haven't talked in a long time. How are you doing? How's the family doing? Right. And begin to build a relationship. I wouldn't start out with, you know, and I'm not saying Marie would do that, you know, like I saw this in the paper and I think you need help. Right. You have to first establish a relationship of trust because what will happen, Marie, is eventually she's going to need help. Right. And you could be the person that she would go to. And so I know it can be hard for family members and friends to sort of wonder, and they can be judgmental sometimes, but reestablishing that relationship would be the first step for sure. To stay close. And in case Marie missed the beginning of the conversation, um, she just mentioned that the husband in this in this situation was arrested for strangulation. And Melissa, remind us, what do we know about um, strangulation and, and how that can be a sign of um, what c- could come in domestic abuse situations? Yeah. And when we look at sort of what are the risk factors of abusers who are very dangerous or more likely to kill, strangulation is one of those risk factors that is an indication of that, that if we know someone who's been strangled, we should be concerned about them. We should be concerned about their well-being and their safety. And so, you know, for that reason, I hope that this survivor has a number of people that, you know, that she can go to and help. I mean, the other thing just 
just related to like what Scott was saying is a lot of survivors, you know, their life, they're economically tied, you know, to abusers. They have children with abusers and the court system's not fast either. Right. So Mm -hmm. to Scott's point, you know, we can't have prosecutors just going forward when there's um, a victim because the, the there's lots of things that abusers do to make it very difficult and that don't position a survivor to be the one to say he needs to be held accountable. It's not a survivor's job, right, to say that and do that. It's our responsibility, you know, as a state, as, you know, those who work for the government to do that. Scott, as we talk more about the Duluth model, um, give us some more insight. What happens in the Duluth model that uh, is making it something that uh, cities around the country are, are, are using because it seems to uh, create, you know, has a success rate, creates some progress? What is the Duluth model? Yeah, it's it's really a method of organizing that Ellen Pence created back in the early 1980s. Um, it's not a th- it's not a thing necessarily. It's a, it's how we organize a visitation center or our men's nonviolence program or a police policy. Um, it's 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 the method we go about gathering information and data to figure out what's the best way to do this. And and ultimately, it, al- it what we're trying to do is align the system response with the needs of the survivors who are trying to access it. Um, So many systems are designed in a way um, that benefit the people in the system, and then the people they serve have to find their way over all the barriers to get into it. What we're trying to do is design the system so that it's aligning with um, what the needs are of those that we're trying to serve. So give you an example. Um, We did some work up here in uh, with the St. Louis County Sheriff's Department, uh, and their 911 response. And so when we talked to survivors, the number one thing that they said that they wanted to know was, is somebody coming? I mean, they're calling for help. Is somebody on their way? And it's the one thing that they never found out. Um, and so there's there's issues with liability and, and telling a survivor how long the car is going to, you know, the squad's going to take to get there. But in the end, what we did working with command is um, come up with a response where the uh, call taker um, will let the survivor know uh, when a, a squad has been dispatched. And what we heard from survivors is, is that it, we can answer all their questions, which don't seem to be relevant or important to the survivor, but are extremely important to the safety of law enforcement um, uh, responding to the scene. So um, we listened to these 25 calls before. We took 25 calls after we implemented this response and heard a wholly different way in which call takers were engaging with survivors and survivors were able to talk, t- talk to them um, and give them the kind of information they needed. There wasn't this argument about trying to make it so that, that somebody was coming because they already knew somebody was coming. Um, and that's just a, a kind of a simple um, example of, of how much a barrier a 911 call can be when we don't sit down and talk to the people who are making the call. Um, that's how we should, that's really what we should be basing the, 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 that particular kind of call, um, response on is who's making the call and what are their circumstances so that we don't make it more risky, um, for the person, uh, uh, trying to access help. So really the Duluth model is a way of aligning systems and mm-hmm. coordinating systems so that they're all working together with one particular, uh, way of thinking about the problem and, um, uh, every policy, every protocol is linked across the system 
So it makes it very difficult for that, as we talked about earlier, for offenders to find those gaps and tell everybody this is what you do to get out of it. As we talk more about gaps, uh, again, Global Rights for Women uh, recently released a report looking at gaps and how the Minneapolis Police Department in particular responds to domestic violence cases. One of the findings uh, had to do with the uh, investigative process. Uh, And Melissa, tell us what uh, you all discovered when it comes to witnesses to domestic abuse cases. Yeah, so one of the gaps that we found, and it's one of the things that survivors told us also for survivors who did get a copy of their reports, for example, that survivors said, you know, there are a number of witnesses there. It's not even in the report, you know, that uh, my neighbor heard it, you know, in our apartment building or my friend was over when it happened or that my children were there. So what we found from survivors and from the investigation is that even if the initial patrol would document, you know, that other people were there, that there was no, there was a lack of follow-up by the investigators or the on-site patrol officers to talk to those witnesses. So that um, is a really big problem. So to the uh, situation, for example, like Marie was calling about, you know, one of the things that prosecutors also, you know, it helps their uh, prosecuting the case if if there's uh, evidence, right, from more than just the survivor, that can help reposition a survivor to not be the sole person of information as well. So that's a huge gap. Also, as relates to children, for example, in a lot of the reports that we looked at, um, the survivors had children. No one talked to the children. It was a fascinating example of how the Minneapolis police policy says that they should do some initial talking, you know, with children about, so not to do a full interview, but there are some basic things that they could get from children. When we interviewed police and we said, so, you know, and talked to them and we saw this in evaluations and trainings as well and talked to command, why isn't it that in none of these reports that we looked at that the Minneapolis police, right, aren't talking to children? A lot of them are older children, you know, teenagers as well. And Mm -hmm. they said, oh, because we have the child advocacy group, that's their job. So we call the child advocacy group and we say, so this is what the police are saying. They said, no, right? We said, we don't want them to do a full right interview. That's our job. But that's never been the agreement, right? Well, that's an example of how the policy can say one thing, right? But what's actually happening, you have to take the time to look at. That's what we saw in the reports. And you have to take the time to understand why it's happening. But the lack of uh, talking to witnesses was a major problem in what we saw in the city of Minneapolis. So the study found that officers often uh, failed to interview witnesses um, to the abuser's conduct including children. So then that must then make it more difficult to prosecute these cases. Yeah, it makes it significantly more difficult uh, for prosecutors. You know, so prosecutors, right, they're not investigators. They only get what the department sends them, right? So a lot of prosecutors, they don't even, there there are cases where we found that the prosecutors didn't even know their other witnesses because it didn't even get written down that there were. And then sometimes they would say, you know, um, there was a friend who was there and the prosecutor says, well, did anybody talk to the friend? No, 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 we didn't. So at this point, by the time the prosecutor gets it to go back, you know, now you have five more hurdles to get a hold of the person, their memory of it. And what we found is even when the prosecutor asked the investigators to go out and ask, their attempts at contacting even survivors again 
or witnesses oftentimes would be uh, left to voicemails, um, you know, uh, we're not able to get a hold of the, uh, mm-hmm. the witness, right? So, you know, minimal attempts in terms of it, but these are all things that can be addressed is if at the front and at the beginning, right, a little bit more work is done in order for that to happen. All right. In our remaining minutes, I do want to get one more phone call in from a listener in St. Cloud. Peggy's on the phone. Peggy, thank you for waiting. And what do you want to share with us or ask? Oh, um, I wanted to ask. Oh, thank you, by the way. Um, I wanted to ask. Uh, it's interesting you started talking about children just because children haven't been part of this conversation up, up until that moment. Mm-hmm. Um, so actually, my question was, um, does it... I. Uh, does it decrease the likelihood that a woman will call for help if she has children present? Like, how do children impact um, typically uh, a woman um, searching out and getting support or even making um, phone calls in moments of um, Mm -hmm. violence that's occurring right in that moment? I understand. Um, Um, Scott, can you answer Peggy's question? Um, What happens when children are present? Yeah, there's a, so many things that happen, um, and the diversity of the answer to to her question is is or is is broad. But and Scott, I'm sorry, we just have a minute and a half left. I just want to let you know. Yeah, sure. Mm-hmm. So basically, they make it a lot more difficult because he's telling her that if you if you do anything that you're not supposed to do, I'm going to take your kids away. He's taken everything else away. So why wouldn't she believe him? Um, if she has children that are older, as Melissa was talking about earlier, and she's trying to get away, she has to, I mean, getting away is one of the most dangerous things a survivor can try to do to an abuser. And the more children, the older the children they have, the harder it makes it uh, to, to get away because now to get out, how is she going to stay out? He controls the finances. He controls the money. And if she has to go back, it's going to be twice as bad. But now she's got to support all these kids. Um you know, and then the shelter might not take somebody who's a, a boy who's, uh, you know, 16 years old um, in, in, into their space. So it, it just makes it a lot more complicated mm-hmm. and they don't have a lot of space and time to figure that out. All right. Uh, I want to thank our guests. Our time is up. Um, thank you uh, so much for shedding so much light on this very difficult uh, topic to talk about, but we need to know more about it. Uh, we've been talking with Melissa Skaya, the Director of International Training at Global Rights for Women, a Minneapolis-based nonprofit working to end gender-based violence against women and girls. Global Rights for Women recently released a report looking at gaps in how the Minneapolis Police Department responds to domestic violence cases. Also talking with Scott Miller, the executive director of the Domestic Abuse Intervention Programs in Duluth. That organization uses the Duluth model to address domestic violence that centers the survivor's experience. Thank you to our callers who called in. Today's conversation was produced by Danelle Cloutier. Be safe, everyone. We'll talk again tomorrow morning at 9. Thanks for listening to a recording of my live radio show on NPR News. A reminder that if you want to catch my show in real time, tune in and call in weekdays at 9 a.m.